Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am very excited today to have as my guest Professor Richard Primus of the University of Michigan. He is the Theodore J. St. Antoine Collegiate Professor of Law. Richard is a graduate of Harvard and he's a PhD from Oxford and a JD from Yale. He clerked for Judge Calabresi and Justice Ginsburg. He's a Rhodes Scholar, Senior Advisor for the Journal of American History and about a million other things. And quite simply, he's one of our country's leading constitutional law scholars. Thank you for being here, Richard. Eric, that's very generous. I'm happy to be here. It's nice to see you. So um, we're going to start right in your wheelhouse. Um, one of the things that first-year law students learn in their required or second-year law students in their con law course is that, um, and it's kind of taken as a given by, I would say, 98% of law professors, that Congress is an um, institution of limited powers um, and all other powers reside in states. And for Congress to act, it has to point to a specific delegation of power or exercise of power in the Constitution. You don't feel that way, and there aren't many like you. <laughs> so tell me why all that is wrong. Sure. So, um, I mean, there's a sense in which it isn't wrong. Okay. It's the prevailing doctrine. Right. And I, like, I explained to all my students, uh, no matter what that I've written on this topic that you might have read, I need you to understand that if you stand up in court and <laughs> argue in support of the constitutionality of some federal statute, you need to point to an enumerated power in the Constitution that you say warrants that statute. That's how this game is played. Because if you get up in court and you say, actually, Your Honor, no enumerated power warrants this statute, but it's good anyway, you will lose, <laughs> right? And, and you will have committed malpractice. <laughs> and if you come out of my class thinking anything other than that about the state of legal practice in America in the year 2023, I will have committed malpractice. <laughs> So, so it, 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 there's a really important sense in which it's not wrong, okay. right? But then there's a really important sense in which I think it is wrong. And that, that goes like this. Um, there is a way of looking at federal power and constitutional law, the conventional orthodox way, um, that we can think of as enumerationism. Uh, the, the term uh, I credit to David Schwartz, who teaches at the University of Wisconsin. Um, enumerationism is a set of connected ideas about congressional power, right? The first of which is, um, that Congress can only legislate on the basis of powers enumerated in the Constitution, where enumerated basically means written, right? Textually specified. Yes. And um, most of them are Article 1, Section 8, but not all. Most, but not all, right? And that's in fact critical, but, um, uh, uh, Article 1, Section 8 is the longest list of such powers all in one place. There are a bunch of other important ones scattered elsewhere. Yeah. Right? Um, and so we have a proposition, right, that's very traditionally recited in con law that the federal government is government of enumerated powers, which is taken to mean um, those powers are the only ones that Congress can exercise, right? Anything else? Congress can't. And the 10th Amendment is read as if it confirms that proposition, right, by saying the powers not delegated to the United States are reserved to the states or to the people. Um, there are a bunch of things about the way that enumerationism teaches lawyers to think about federal power and the Constitution that don't make any sense. Um, enumeration teaches us to think about federalism in a way that doesn't make sense. Enumerationism teaches us to read the words of the Constitution as if they said things that they don't actually say. And enumerationism comes with a historical story or a set of historical stories about what the framers were trying to do and what they agreed upon and how the system has been operationalized since then um, that are mythical um, <laughs> or, or at least deeply problematic stories. And all of these different pieces of the way we think about enumerated powers help support each other, right? Um, so if I, if I push on someone and say, you know, um, that thing that you think about what the 10th Amendment says, uh, the 10th Amendment doesn't really say that, they might retreat too well, but federalism requires it. Or if I, when I point out, well, federalism doesn't really require it, they might retreat too well, though, but the framers were trying to. And, um, I think all of these things are wrong and it takes a while to understand, you know, why they're wrong. And I think that there are healthier, better ways of understanding the federal government's relationship to its legislative power that we could get to if we could replace enumerationism. 
So what I've said so far is sufficiently, you know, jarring, sufficiently <laughs> weird, right, for someone who like knows the orthodoxies of constitutional law. But I should probably unpack it a little bit. Yes, right? I would just say um, uh, it's no more weird than a lot of guests I've had on this podcast last week. Richard Ray and I were talk, talking about um, personal precedent at the Supreme Court, and Richard has some brilliant, creative, and many people would say weird ideas about that. I, yeah, he's got this idea about precedent as permission, which is really provocative, right, and is. not the normal way of thinking about things. It is. My only point is I, I um, one of the things I respect so much about you, and I said this to Richard, is um, I think pushing the boundaries of what is well accepted is a really important task, even if you never win, even if you never convince anybody. Um, it's still... Um, I read your work, and I don't know if you're right or wrong, but you have a strong argument, and that's enough. Well, thanks. So go ahead. Well, thanks. So, so here are here are a few ways in. So first, um, I've been speaking here about enumerated powers, and you opened by talking also about limited powers, mm -hmm. and it's important to remember the distinction between those things. We have a limited federal government. And it's super important that we have a limited federal government. That is to say, there are lots of things that the federal government cannot do, and it's good that the federal government can't do it. Them. The federal government can't establish a religion. The federal government can't censor this podcast because it doesn't like the ideas that are being expressed, right? The federal government can't conduct unreasonable searches and seizures, right? Lots of really good stuff that we have as constitutional limits on the federal government. By the way, we should, sorry, quick interruption. It would be the Supreme Court who would want to censor this podcast, not the president, but go ahead. <laughs> well, perhaps so. Perhaps so. <laughs> Um, Sorry. That was my fault. I, I interrupted No, it's not a problem. But enumeration and limitation are different things, right? State governments are also limited governments, right? I live in Michigan, and the state of Michigan can't establish a religion either. Right. But not because it's limited to a set of enumerated powers. Right. The state of Michigan has general police power, right? What limits the state of Michigan is a bunch of affirmative limits, right, prohibitions of the thou shalt not form, right? No established religions, no abridgments of free speech, so on and so on and so forth, right? And then there's another thing that does really important limiting work at both the federal and the state levels, which is simply the structure of the lawmaking process, right? We have bicameralism, we have presentment, we have elections, right? That's actually the most important limiting force um, in preventing the government from doing, you know, all kinds of crazy things. The distinctive claim of enumerationism that is orthodox and constitutional law is the federal government is limited not just by the process and not just by the affirmative prohibitions, but also by the fact that the Constitution enumerates a closed set of powers and the federal government can do those things and none others, right? That the enumeration itself is a limitation. No, no, that's not conceptually necessary. You could have an institution with enumerated powers where the enumerated powers didn't limit at all, right? So imagine um, a legislature with seven enumerated powers, um, the power to legislate on Monday, on Tuesday, <laughs> on Wednesday. That's great. Right? Yeah. So you have enumerated powers, yeah. but the enumerated powers aren't a mechanism of limitation, right? Right. The claim that we normally make about Congress is its enumerated powers are limiting. And that they're supposed to be limiting and that it's essential for federalism that they be limiting, right? That's the, um, uh, that's a, that's the view that enumerationism takes of how federal law works. Um, and one of the things that I want to notice is, um, something that m most of us acknowledge, uh, most of the time, which is that in practice, Enumeration of Congress's powers doesn't seem to limit the scope of federal legislation in any meaningful way, right? At least for the last 85 years, let's say, right, Congress has had a pretty free field to legislate, right? Um, even in the age of the 21st century after cases like Lopez and Morrison, there are like a couple of things around the edges that maybe Congress would have a hard time regulating with its enumerated powers. Richard, just, just, for the, just for the non-lawyers listening, we're talking about Congress's power under the Commerce Clause now, yeah. which has been interpreted very broadly by the Supreme Court, even, even the Rehnquist and Roberts courts. That's right. Like Even under the Rehnquist and Roberts courts, we have uh, um, 
Congress has the power to regulate commerce, which either deployed alone or in connection with the necessary and proper clause, mm -hmm. allows Congress to regulate pretty much any activity that in the aggregate has a substantial effect on the American economy. And that's pretty much anything, right? I mean, like the yeah. tomatoes that I grow in the garden, um, uh, you know, aren't, you know, a billion dollar tomato industry. But when you add up everyone's tomatoes in the garden, you have something that under clear Supreme Court case law, right, has in the aggregate an effect on the interstate market and is therefore regulable by Congress, mm -hmm. right? The, in practice, the powers that Congress can exercise under its enumerated powers are not meaningfully narrower than the powers that states can exercise under their general legislative jurisdiction. And this is true even after, you know, um, many, many, many years of the Roberts and Rehnquist courts. Now, there are people who think this is a problem, right? It's quite common today on the bench and in the academy for people to think, well, that's true as a descriptive matter. But what it means is that the enumerated powers have been construed much too broadly. Mm -hmm. Really, the enumerated powers are supposed to do a lot more limiting work than they are actually doing. And I think, well, maybe we'd have to think about that. But anytime someone says an entire system has been operated wrong for 85 years, I think, are you sure they're all doing it wrong? <laughs> are you sure they're all like, maybe what's wrong is the idea that it's supposed to be very different, right? So, why would we have the idea that it's supposed to be very different? Why would we have the idea? Now, one possible answer is, well, because we can't have a federal government that's authorized to do just anything, right? Down, that, that invites tyranny and oppressive government and so forth. And, and to that I say, well, yeah, not really. Not really, right? Most of the things that we're most worried about the federal government's or any government's doing are blocked constitutionally by the, the Constitution's affirmative prohibitions, right. right? Speech, religion, you know, all of those sorts of things. Guns. Right? Right? I mean, look, it's not necessarily my optimal choice of what's blocked, but for someone, it's very important that that's blocked. Yeah. Right? And the point is, the Constitution actually has a very robust mechanism of preventing the federal government from doing the things that we think of as most violative of our most important rights. And it has nothing at all to do with enumerated powers. It's the much more straightforward device of saying, don't do that bad stuff, right? And then the constitutional system also has a different device for making sure that the government doesn't do all kinds of other oppressive things that might not be covered by those particular prohibitions, which is elections. Mm -hmm. Right. And the fact that, that legislators, I, I'm no enormous fan of Congress, um, in its present form. Um, uh, but I don't think that it's systematically evil or systematically insane. <laughs> so Congress could constitutionally tax the income of every American at the rate of 99%. Right. I think that'd be a very bad thing. I think it'd be oppressive. I think it'd be destructive. I think it'd be, you know, and there's no constitutional prohibition that would block it, right? right? But I lose no sleep over this possibility, right? Right. I lose no sleep over this possibility because that and a million other crazy things are things that I'm quite confident Congress is just not going to do, right? Because you could never get Congress to agree to it because even if there were people in Congress who wanted to do it, they would all get thrown out at the next election. So the point of all this is just to say the Constitution actually has lots of much more effective ways of preventing most of the bad things that we would worried about than relying on this system of enumerated powers. That's the first thing that I want to point out, right? And then- Let me ask you one question uh, about that, yeah. what you said so far. It, it sounds like a, a, a brother or sister to an argument that I read when I first started teaching in 91. I think it was by Weschler, but I have that, if I have that wrong, don't come at me. Um, that we don't need the court for separation of, power case, separation of powers cases or federalism cases so much. Because there are built-in mechanisms to make sure. Uh, there are so many checks and balances built into our system. The filibuster, not in the Constitution, but adopted for 150 years or whatever. But there are other mechanisms where the limits are internal in the sense you're taught. They're structural limits. And that's what the founding fathers, I think his argument was, that's how they intended to limit federal power. 
Yeah. So there's something important and correct about that as applied to federalism and the political process. I don't want to lean too heavily on it. Okay. Right. So, um, that is a, it is the case that historically the mechanisms that the framers thought were the most important ones for protecting federalism, by which we mean protecting local government against overwhelming federal power, and also the most important mechanisms for preventing against other kinds of oppressive national government behavior that doesn't necessarily sound in federalism, mm -hmm. would not be judicially enforced at all, but would be a function of the fact that all the people making the decisions for the national government are elected. Right. right. And accountable to right. people in various localities. Right. That was their primary view. Yeah. Those are the arrangements that they spent most of the summer of the Constitutional Convention working out. Right. How many houses? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, how do we choose the people in those houses? And how do they serve? Because those are the most important mechanisms for preventing the federal government from behaving abusively. Now, where my argument differs from the ones that you're talking about um, a couple of ways. The first is I'm not saying that there is no important role for the court in the limitation that I'm talking about. But what I think the role for the court is, is different. I think the court has a very important role because I don't think that it's only the process limits that protect federalism and protect individual rights. I think it's also the affirmative prohibitions, mm -hmm. right? And I think the courts in the modern system, right, whether the framers thought of it this way or not, the courts in the modern system have a very important role to play in enforcing the affirmative prohibitions, right? I feel better about my right to free speech in a world where we have the check of a judiciary than in a world where we don't have the check of a judiciary, even if I don't believe, you know, that we should have an idealized view of what that judicial check can accomplish, mm -hmm. right? So, so first, um, federalism and individual rights as a matter of reality, right, in our system, are protected by the shape of the political process and by affirmative constitutional prohibitions, and not really by anything that has to do with the enumerated powers of Congress. And um, now I want to say federalism is an, uh, is, is an enormously valuable thing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, sometimes people hear me say, I don't think that the enumerated powers of Congress are or need to be construed as limiting. And they say, well, that means that you just want national government and all the decisions are going to be na made nationally and there's nothing for local government to do. And I think, no, 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 that's totally wrong. I I'm thinking <laughs> of my colleague, Professor Kinkoff, who's working for Biden right now, um, worked for Obama and Clinton, who actually believes we should pretty much wipe out state lines legally. It's fine right. on a map, but legally we should wipe them out. <laughs> you, that's not yeah, you, I, is my point. Yeah, I'm not saying that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, th I mean, look, the the actual state map that we have is not one that a rational policymaker would draw. Right. It, <laughs> it exists for a bunch of historically contingent reasons. Right. Right. But the basic structure of allocating some decision making to the center and some to the localities can be a very good thing. There are lots of reasons why you would want lots of decisions to be made locally. Right. Um. So my contention isn't that Congress should do everything, right? The contention is that the enumeration of powers is not a necessary or a useful guide to the things that should be mostly left to the locals. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really written for that reason. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't really written even with the sense that we're leaving off a specific set of things from this list, and that's what the locals should do. Um, the enumeration of powers was written, the enumeration of powers in Article 1, Section 8, was written, I think, mostly as a way of making sure that a bunch of things that Congress really needs to be able to do would be clearly within the powers of Congress, rather than things that people would fight about later as to whether Congress could do or not. That is to say, they didn't, it's not written primarily for the project of implicitly by negative implication taking some things right. away from Congress, right. right? But for the much more straightforward progress of ruling things in, right? That seems to me to be the dominant motivation and a much better explanation for what winds up 
on the list. Right? It's also, by the way, I think consistent in many ways with what John Marshall wrote in Marbury, which are facts that, that people who are strong Federalists tend to ignore. But And he was, of course, a nationalist. But there are parts of Marbury that I think sound a lot like what you're saying. So then, so now, like, let's notice a few things um, about the text of the Constitution. Um, uh, one of, let's say, something about Article One, Section 1, and something about the Tenth Amendment, and then something about Article One, Section 8. Sure. Okay. So, um, the enumerationist view, Article One, Section 1, right, the legislative vesting clause, mm -hmm is often read to mean that Congress can act on the basis of its textually enumerated powers and no others. Why? The text says that all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate and a House of Representatives. And lots of people say, well, the text speaks of legislative powers herein granted. It doesn't say, um, all legislative powers. It doesn't say the legislative power of the United States in general. It speaks restrictively, right? Mm -hmm. What it's talking about is the legislative powers herein granted. Um, and that tells us that Congress is limited to its textually enumerated powers. And this is a position that's taken by um, a bunch of people who are thought of as libertarian or conservative originalists in constitutional law, but not only. It's a, it's, it, it's a, it's a more broadly held view, right, than that. Yeah. And I think it's just a misreading of the text. This read, the enumerationist reading of this clause proceeds as if the Constitution said only the legislative right. power is granted right. in the Congress of the United States. And it doesn't say that, right? I've never seen a copy of the Constitution that says that. <laughs> what Article 1, Section 1 says is all legislative powers here and granted shall be vested in the Congress of the United States. It's a way of saying the legislative powers that we're talking about, they belong to Congress and nobody else. Which, by the way, is how when I first started preparing my very first Con Law 1 class, and I read that before I researched anything, that's how I read it. The powers that we're giving in this Constitution that are legislative belong to Congress, which, which is not saying, and there are no other powers. <laughs> no, that's, and that's just the most straightforward reading, yeah. right? One of the things that enumerationism as a way of thinking does is it shapes and distorts the way we think about all sorts of things in constitutional law. That is to say, if we didn't already believe that Congress is limited to its enumerated powers and that it is important for Congress to be limited to its enumerated powers, nobody would read the vesting clause as if it said that. Right. We read, people read the vesting clause that way because they expect the Constitution to say that. So they find something that like is sort of in the neighborhood of it and read it, I think, without realizing that they're reading it against its natural sense, as if it meant that. And the Tenth Amendment is similar, right? The Tenth Amendment says the powers uh, not delegated by this Constitution to the United States, right, or prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. We usually, the, the, the prevailing convention in constitutional law reads the 10th Amendment as if it said, all powers not textually enumerated right. in this constitution as belonging to the United States are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. But it doesn't say that, right? It says the powers not delegated and express delegation by the enumeration of something in a text is not the only way that a power can be delegated. Right. Powers can be delegated expressly. Powers can be delegated implicitly. Many of the framers believed that the mere fact of constituting the United States as a government, you know, inherently delegated a bunch of powers to it, right? We, now I'm not saying that the people who read the 10th Amendment to mean what the 10th Amendment is normally read to mean, um, are like acting stupidly or in bad faith or anything like that. Like, um, it is a normal thing in legal interpretation that we read texts to mean what we think it would be sensible for them to mean. And, right? that, and that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to talk to you and why your scholarship is so important. And I urge people to read it because we all grow up, even in grade school, the federal government of limited powers. 
and then and then enumerated powers. Enumerated. Well, well, right? Because I agree about limited powers. Right. But that, when I say, when but when I learned in grade school or middle school about limited powers, I wasn't thinking because the First Amendment limits it. I was thinking they only have the powers the Constitution gives right. them. Okay. I think that's okay. how people, most okay. people, look at that as limited. Okay. I think one of your great insights is that the federal government's powers are really limited whether enumeration is right or wrong. I think that's a great point. Yeah, that is to say, because I don't want people to think, sometimes people say, sometimes the Supreme Court writes as if, Yeah. if the enumeration wasn't limiting, the federal government could do absolutely any crazy thing it wanted to. They definitely right? sound that way all the time. And, and, and that's obviously not right. I mean, like, stop any, like, you know, American who with a high school education, right? And like they know the federal government is restricted by protections of free speech and religion and a hundred other things, right? Now, sometimes this I think verges uh, on the comical. Sometimes you'll get a Supreme Court opinion that says, um, if the enumeration of powers were not limiting, right, uh, uh, nothing would stop the federal government, you know, from from. Do, doing anything, you know, that it might want to do. And they might give us a parenthetical that says something like, you know, except for the affirmative prohibitions written into the Constitution, close print. And I think, okay, let's try some analogous sentences. Um, nothing prevents the United States from militarily conquering Canada other than the fact that the United States and Canada are really good friends and that's just never going to happen, right? <laughs> or better yet, nothing present, prevents Canada from militarily conquering the United States Except the fact that they're really good friends and that's never going to happen. And by the way, we have an army that's like 50 times bigger than their army. And so it could never happen anyway. But except for that, right. nothing stops it. Right. right? Or um, um, uh, 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 imagine someone who said, uh, um, uh, it's very important that there be communication between the American Midwest and the West Coast. So there must be a Pony Express. Because without the Pony Express, there would be no way for people in the American <laughs> Midwest to communicate with the people on the West Coast, peren, except for all of modern telecommunications. Right. Close peren, right? right. The Bill of Rights and the political process is all of modern telecommunications in the last example, or is the U.S. military in the previous example. It's the thing that does the work, right? right? And it right. does the work that we need it to do, right? Now, let's say something about Article 1, Section 8, which is like a little bit more subtle, mm -hmm. but I think really helps make the point about how much the enumerationist frame shapes the way we think about the Constitution in, 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 and, and teaches us to read it in ways that are not quite what it says. It often happens in judicial opinions that when a court recites the proposition, the federal government's government you know, limited to its enumerated powers, one of the things that it will cite is Article 1, Section 8. Right. Right? Um, in United States versus Lopez, right, the great landmark 1995 case in which the Supreme Court for the first time in 60 years found that something was beyond Congress's enumerated power under the Commerce Clause, Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote, you know, we're going to start with first principles. And one of our first principles is that the Constitution creates a government, you know, that in which Congress is limited to enumerated powers, and he cites Article 1, Section 8. Now, let's drill down on this for a minute. Normally, when you cite something, it's because the thing you cite establishes the proposition. Yeah, that, that norm doesn't recite. apply to the Supreme Court, but go ahead. <laughs> right? But, like, but that's what you're saying. Yeah, I know. Right? When you cite, right? But Article 1, Section 8 doesn't say these are the only powers of Congress. And Article 1, Section 8 doesn't say um, uh, the federal government is a government of enumerated powers. It doesn't say either of those things, right? It's just a list, which means if Article 1, Section 8 stands for the proposition that Congress is limited to its enumerated powers, it does so not because it states that proposition. It does so only because it embodies, right, exemplifies, represents that proposition, right? And here I think the thought, and so far, if I, were, if I were saying this to Chief Justice Rehnquist, I think he would nod along and say, well, yes, of course, that's what I mean, right, when I, when I right. say that. But here's the weird thing. Article 1, Section 8 can't possibly embody the proposition that Congress is limited to a list of enumerated powers because Article 1, Section 8 is only a subset of the powers that are textually given to Congress in the Constitution. Right. Right? Article 1, Section 8 
is an incomplete list of Congress's powers, even if you believe, as the orthodox position does, that Congress has only the powers that are given to it textually in the Constitution. Right? What I'm saying is, Article 1, Section 8 doesn't embody the proposition that where the Constitution writes a long list of powers, it's those powers and none others. Article 1, Section 8 embodies the proposition that the Constitution writes a long list of powers of Congress, and those are only some of the powers of Congress. <laughs> right. It also has other powers. Right. 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 But when we read in an opinion, federal government is a government of limited power, a government limited to its enumerated powers, cite Article 1, Section 8, we just nod our heads as if that makes sense. Right. It, it only makes sense because we already believe that the Constitution is supposed to be like that, which means that we don't notice that Article 1, Section 8 is being treated as if it is an exclusive enumeration, which it is obviously not. And once you realize that Article 1, Section 8 is not an exclusive enumeration, but we sometimes talk about it as if it is, and that the vesting clause doesn't say only these powers, but we pretend that it does, and that the Tenth Amendment doesn't say textually delegated, but we pretend that it does, you start to think, hey, wait a minute, maybe all of these little gaps between the way the conventional view reads the Constitution and what the Constitution actually seems to say is a sign that this isn't the only way to read the Constitution. Maybe we are distorting it. Maybe we're like pulling and pushing on it to make it line up with the theory that has been superimposed upon it and that isn't a necessary or a healthy theory. Let me ask you a question. Um, Randy Barnett was on this podcast a while back, and, I, and I've written a lot about Randy. I know you guys know each other and are friends. Sure. Um, I think I think I'm not. I have not talked to Randy about your scholarship, but my, I'm, I'm guessing you have. But my intuition is Randy would say, um, might, might even agree textually with everything you're saying, or might not, but he might. But he would then go. See, he said this to me about other issues of federalism, like the Eleventh Amendment. He would say, or he said to me, Eric, you don't get it. The whole idea was to make sure that the federal government would be a government of limited powers, um, both affirmatively and negatively, meaning there were things they could not do in Article 1, Section 8, and or, I'm sorry, in the Bill of Rights, but also that whether they wrote it the right way or not, they all thought that there were going to be some things that Congress couldn't do, even if not prohibited by the Bill of Rights. That was just a universal sentiment among the founding fathers. I think Randy yeah. would make that argument. I think he would. And I want to say, like, Randy is a really important, skillful, interesting scholar. Like I've learned a lot over the years by reading his work and by engaging with him. And um, he and I don't disagree about everything. We disagree about a lot of things, yeah, yeah. right? Um, uh, and I have found engaging with his ideas quite worthwhile, right? Yeah, me too. This is an area where I disagree with him. Yeah. Um, and, and I disagree with him for, for a few different reasons. Um, let me start by saying one thing where I think I don't disagree with him. I agree that the framers were not trying to create a Congress that would have all legislative power, like wall-to-wall -wall police power. I don't think they were trying to do that, right? Um, but I do think that many of them, I think there's a dispute among them about what they were trying to do. I think that there were some among them who had a, a, a set of ideas and preferences not so far from what someone like Randy would describe. Mm -hmm. But I think there were a bunch of others who had a much more robust view of what the national government should be authorized to do. And let me just say, in your work, you document that very well um, that I've seen. Well, thank you. Thank you. So, and I think that the constitution that we actually have does not reflect only the more restrictive view of federal power. I think the constitution we have was written to be deliberately open to a more robust view of national power on which Congress would exercise its enumerated powers and also a bunch of powers that were implicitly or inherently vested in the national government by virtue of its being the national government. And one of the reasons that I'm confident that the Constitution was written like um, for that to be an interpretation of it is that in the ratification debates, lots of people said so. Mm 
right? In the ratification debates, lots of people said this government that would be created by this constitution is actually going to be enormously powerful. Um, it's going, it's, there's nothing in it that says that it's confined only to its enumerated powers. The necessary and proper power is enormously expansive. Between the necessary and proper power and the preamble, right? Some people also add the general welfare clause of Article One. Mm -hmm. um, this is a pretty robust, right, national government. Now, most of the people who made these arguments during the ratification debates were skeptical that this was a good idea. They say this was an argument that was usually raised in opposition to ratification rather than in support of it. Right. Right. But that doesn't mean it's wrong. Right? right. That doesn't mean it's wrong. It tells us that that is an available set of readings. Right. And, um, and the way this, this conversation goes conventionally goes something like this. The person in my position says, you realize that a lot of people in the 1780s read the Constitution in a more expansive way than the enumerationists do. And the enumerationist says, yes, but those were the critics, right? right. Those were the, and, um, and the Federalists, right? The people who were responsible for the Constitution and who won in the end largely disavowed those readings, right? They largely said, uh, no, it's not that big. Um, it's going to be, some of them said things like, actually, no, the Constitution is limited. The Constitution limits Congress to a set of enumerated powers, right? You can find statements like that by leading Federalists, right? People like Madison and others um, in those debates. And the normal conversation says, when the Federalists made that response, they were offering an interpretation of the Constitution on which ratifying voters could then rely when they voted yes and the constitution was adopted in reliance on that narrowing interpretation right and that therefore governs even if you could read the constitution more expansively right um courts and commentators frequently you know say things like this and it sounds like it has a logic to it but i think if you push on it the logic kind of falls apart and there are a few reasons why the first is um it's not clear to me who authorized James Madison to waive <laughs> a more robust reading of the Constitution, right, on his say-so or on his and, you know, the say-so of five or six other important Federalists who were politically campaigning to get something ratified and therefore had incentives to present the thing in the light that would be threatening to the least number of possible voters. Which, by the way, is exactly what Hamilton did about the courts in Federalist Number 78, minimizing the power of the courts to the objection. Sure. Same thing. Sure, right? That is to say, maybe there were some ratifiers who were reassured by these narrowing interpretations and supported the Constitution for that reason. But maybe there were other ratifiers who wanted a way more powerful government than Madison was letting on and who read the Constitution and says, this Constitution gives me the way more powerful national government that I think we need, right? And I'm voting to ratify, not in reliance on what this guy Madison says it means, but on my reading of the Constitution, which like delivers a much more robust national government. It's not clear to me why Madison gets to whip the rug out from under that guy just by saying something to mollify, right, a skeptic, right? Next, there's a way in which the normal story about waiver and reliance, I really think underestimates the sophistication of the rat of the skeptical ratifier who the argument is offered in defense of, right? It goes something like this. We're supposed to imagine that there are ratifiers at, you know, the convention in Virginia or New York or one of these places who are thinking, you know, there are things about this constitution I like, but I am really worried about how much power Congress is going to have. As I read this Constitution, I think Congress is going to have too much power, and that makes me disinclined to ratify the Constitution. And next, we're supposed to imagine that that ratifier hears someone like Madison, right, like like a, a, a leading-edge activist right. for the new Constitution, come in and say, no, 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 don't worry. Right. Be happy. Like, I understand that you read the Constitution as doing that thing that you're scared of, but I'm here to tell you it's not gonna. Right. 
And we're supposed to imagine that that skeptical ratifier thinks, okay, I trust that. <laughs> like, I trust, you know, this person who wants, who clearly does want a much more nationalist constitution, right? Like, Federalist Papers are about making a case for a much more vigorous national government, yeah. right? I trust this guy who wants a more robust national government when he tells me, <laughs> right, to believe his narrowing interpretation and not the words of the document in front of me. Why would we believe that that person would think that he could trust Madison? Why would we think that that person would believe that even if he trusted Madison, that Madison could guarantee, right, right, that 10, 20 years from now, when who knows who is operating the federal government on the basis of this constitution, that it would be operated on the basis of this, you know, mollifying reassurance that Madison makes on the floor of the convention and not on the basis of the way the people making the decisions actually read the documents. And what's so fascinating about that to me, Richard, is I have not, I have not done the work in the historical analysis of that question. I have done the historical analysis, though, about judicial review. And the idea that Hamilton in number 78, when he talks about um, the court will exercise judgment, not will, and how the, the court is limited to striking down laws in cases of irreconcilable variance, uh, he, was, he was responding to a guy whose pen name was Brutus, and there's no way Brutus was mollified by what Hamilton said. There's no way. No. Not, not a chance in the world. And I, I no. right? And, same thing, right? No same, way. Yeah. No way. Yeah. And, and, and Madison, you know, Madison took Brutus very seriously. Yeah. Right? Um, uh, when, uh, when Brutus started writing his essays, Madison in his private correspondence uh, you know, wrote, you know, there's a new guy entering the debate <laughs> and he strikes at the foundation. Like yes. he sees what's really fundamental yes. here, yes. right? Yeah. Um, and then there's and and then and, and there's another dynamic I think that uh, that is not taken seriously enough here, which is a bunch of people voted to ratify the Constitution, knowing that they were either getting or taking the risk of getting a national government that was more powerful than they wanted. Right. Like it's a mistake to think that all the people who voted to ratify believed that they were getting a limited government because they wanted a government limited in certain ways. Sometimes you buy a product, even though, you know, the product is perfect. Right. right? Um, uh, because the question is this, like what's behind door number two, <laughs> right? Um, there are, uh, there are any number of people, um, uh, Edmund Randolph, Governor of Virginia um, closes out the Virginia Convention with a very interesting set of remarks in which he says, um, you know, there are people who say this constitution, if adopted, will create a very powerful national government. It'll create a national government that might do things beyond what we imagine. It'll create a national constitution, national government that like it might even endanger slavery. Right. 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 He says, but he says, he says, no, that worries me. He says, but I'm voting for it anyway because I have to take the chance. Right. Right. Because the alternative of not having this constitution is clearly worse. Right. And once you realize that there were people who believed that the constitution could be read to create a more powerful government than enumerationism lets on. And who, even if they didn't want that, nonetheless ratified knowing that that was a plausible, foreseeable reading of the Constitution, right? You have to say, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. That's a plausible, foreseeable reading of the Constitution. And my own view is, as a matter of understanding how federalism works and what the national government needs to do, it's a good reading of the Constitution. So let me, so let's, let me, we're going to, we're running out of time. I could talk to you about this forever. I, I want to get, um, well, first of all, I'm obligated to mention Judge Posner once a, po a podcast, so I'm going to do that right yes, now. Yes, sure. Um, <laughs> that's just my personal thing. Um, if he were hearing you say all this, this this would be his reaction. In fact, I, I know it for a fact. He would say, well, that's all interesting, but who cares what they said in 1791? And who cares what the text of the Constitution says? Because the, con the court has never cared about that anyway in 15 other areas we could talk about. Tell me what's best today. Tell me what's the best, what, what are the positive consequences of doing a complete 180 and your version of the constitution is now the one that is going to be the one that is accepted by most of America. What, yeah, what benefits do we I'll, I'll tell you what I think would be good about it. Yeah. 
we live in a complex modern world that needs governance. Yeah. We need a government that can do something about climate change. We need a government that can do something about global pandemics. We need a government that can do something about poverty, right? We need a government that can do something about like threats to the IT infrastructure, right? right? These are big, complicated problems about which like the welfare of humanity is at stake and they require like national and international scale governmental solutions. And it makes no sense to make the federal government like um, run the risk when it tries to do one of these big things that a committee of judges acting in, I'm going to presume, good faith. Wait, I'm sorry, Richard, but right? I, I taught Obergefell last night and reading Scalia's dissent, we don't want to be governed by a committee of judges. That's, his quote. That's a direct quote. Yeah. <laughs> so like, and, and like, I'm not saying, and let's be clear, I'm not saying there's nothing the committees of judges should do. Right. Right. But for but for the judges to say, you know, we might need to say that the federal government can't do this, right? Despite the pressing public need and despite presumably the majority support at elections for it, because it doesn't appear on this particular list of things, right, that the federal government can do, right, written a long time ago for a different set of reasons, and which we are deliberately reading narrowly under the influence of a theory that says the list must be limiting. Right. Right. That strikes me as a way to have judges strike down a bunch of law that would be like uh, uh, sanctioned by majoritarian elections and in the public interest and in which there's no good reason in federalism shouldn't be made at the national level. And my worry is that courts will strike down laws like that, not really on the basis of what it actually makes sense to do at the national as opposed to the local level, but largely on the basis of their own like um, uh, uh, um, subjective intuitions about what law is good law and what law is bad law, and I don't think there's like I, I don't think it's an accident that the judges who thought that the Affordable Care Act yeah, was, was, beyond, was beyond yeah. the um, uh, the enumerated powers of Congress were the appointees of a political party that was fully dug in on blocking that law. And the judges who thought that it was within the um, powers, right? Chief Justice Roberts, you know, in important complex ways accepted, right? But eight out of nine, yeah. um, uh, a political party that had passed that law. That strikes me as not at all uh, uh, a coincidence. I do think, and, and like there are enough things in the way of the federal government coming up with democratically responsive solutions to the major problems of our age, that this seems like one that we don't need thrown in. If it was doing something good for federalism, if it had some tendency to sort well between what should be done nationally and what should be done locally, I would think differently about it. Can I, but can there's I, no record right. indicating that it's actually good at that. Can I throw another idea at you I, that might be a, a great benefit of your theory um, that I think a lot about? based on your work and the work of Professor Schwartz and others, um, is this. I do think there are Commerce Clause cases that are ridiculous. And, and, and I, I think trying to fit in national power com almost completely into the Commerce Clause, which what the court has done, um, is just, it's just not textually or, or historically, I don't know, pure. A different way of looking at it is to look at it kind of the way Marshall did, which is if it's national, Congress can regulate it. If it's, mm -hmm. it's a national problem. If it's not a national yeah. problem, Congress can't regulate it. And and the point I want to make about that is you, you, you wrote a great article about the Affordable Care Act and, and the inactivity-activity distinction, which I wish we can get into, but we're going to run out of time. But my point is, if that were the test, then the the mandate is just valid because health care is a national problem. Uh, it, it just is. That's right. I mean, I think we would need also a judiciary that was – committed to the view that it should take a pretty deferential attitude toward the question of what is a national problem. hundred percent. Right. Yes. Right. What you don't want to do is to have a system like that and have, um, um, but at the very least you could still have the enumerated powers yep. signaling what is ruled in that we right. don't argue about. Right. Which is what I think is the best reading of them right. um, uh, in the first place. So let me push, I, let me push back at you a different way. 
um, to make a, to make two points, one about your thesis and one about the role of constitutional law. It turns out we have the right to refuse for adult for um, if we if we are adults and we are competent, we can refuse medical treatment, even though the Constitution doesn't say that. The Supreme Court says that we have the right to travel from state to state, which the Constitution doesn't really say explicitly. Um, <laughs> we have the right to raise our kids the way we want to raise them, according to the court. Again, an unenumerated right. And then there are a bunch of limits on the Congress, such as the anti-commandeering doctrine. By the way, if we had more time, I'd get that one drives me nuts. But leaving that aside, there are other limits, sovereign immunity, that are not in the Constitution. Um, states being sued by citizens of their own state under federal law is not barred by the federal Constitution. But the court has barred those suits for all, most mm-hmm. sets of purposes. My question to you is this. Given that, and, and you know, the, my, my one claim to fame in Harvard is that I wrote a piece saying text doesn't matter to the Supreme Court. And I give a zillion examples. I don't think text does matter to the Supreme Court in any substantial way. This idea that the Congress is one of limited powers, uh, limited enumerated powers, might be one that, given our culture, is as strong a non-textual principle as 25 other non-textual things the court has done. Um, and to uproot that now would, would, would be pretty shocking to a lot of people. Oh, I think oh, oh, it would be shocking. Yeah. It's radical. Yeah. But, 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 so let me say, first of all, I agree that enumerationism is largely a non-textual doctrine. Right. Right. That's what I mean to point out when I say in this way and in this way and in this way, the constitution yeah. just doesn't say that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, interestingly, it's a non-textual doctrine that its adherents think of. Yes. As textual. As textually required. Right. Yes. They think that what they're doing is enforcing the text. Yes. Right? So part of my project is to say to them, yeah, not really. Right. Because if I can get people to see, yeah, it's not really textual, then at least the portion of the persuasion toward enumerationism that is a function of people thinking that what they're doing of the text gets weaker. And the same thing if I can say something about the portion of what they think about the framing, mm-hmm. right, and the portion of what they think about federalism. Mm-hmm. I do want to say this. Um, what you're saying about how, like, moving away from the enumerationist way of looking at constitutional law to something like a national powers way of looking yeah. at constitutional law, it would be radical. But I want to be clear about the way in which it's radical, because there's a way in which it's radical, and there's a way in which it's conservative, mm-hmm. right? It's radical at the level of explicit thought and speech. We would have to think and talk in constitutional law in a way that contradicts, right, a basic principle that everybody learns, right, as, you know, one of the foundational ideas of constitutional law. Right. Right. It's a, in that sense, it's a radical change. Right. But there's another way in which what I'm suggesting is actually deeply conservative, right? In the classical Burkean sense. Right. For nearly a century, Congress has basically legislated as if it were not limited by the enumerated powers. Right. The way our system actually works, right, is the limits are the affirmative limits in the political process and not the enumerated limits. And even before that century, there were all kinds of times where on really important issues in American law, Congress acted on the basis not of enumerated powers, but on the basis of something else. And the courts either didn't get in the way or said it's okay, right? Three quick examples. Um, uh, 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 the Louisiana purchase. Yes. Um, Prig versus Pennsylvania on fugitive slaves yep. and the legal tender acts on greenback currency, right? Um, to say nothing of like territorial governance and, and, and Native American affairs and, 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 and a bunch of other things, right? So they say the way this system has actually worked in practice for a long time tracks the way I am describing as the better way of working. And what I am recommending is bringing our speech and our conscious thought in line with what we are already doing. And in that sense, what I'm suggesting is like, it is, if it's radical, it is the radicalism of looking at what we are already doing and deciding to be okay with it. Um, One pushback. I I agree. I I mean, you've pretty much convinced me on this, but I have one pushback. Um, Could the argument be made that there is something to the um, threat, it's not the right word, but 
we'll get a more efficient national government if they think they have to act under enumerated powers. Great. This is a great question. Thank right? you. And, and, like, and I, 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 totally, I totally get the idea, right? That is yeah. to say, even if it's not the case right. that the enumeration of powers is well drawn for deciding what the federal government should and shouldn't be in charge of, the idea that the federal government is limited to its enumerated powers might have some disciplining effect yes. right, on federal officials when they go uh, to decide what to do. And to this, I think, well, you know, maybe, um, uh, uh, but here are a couple of reasons that I have for, for skepticism. One is I haven't noticed that when the federal government wants to do something, it's dissuaded for these reasons. Fair. Right? Um, uh, and that's across the aisle. Right? Um, the second is... Um, By across the aisle, you mean both political parties do it. Yeah, I mean yeah. both political parties. Yeah. yeah. Right? Um, the, the second is um, the argument has the, the same form as it is important that as a matter of the public civic culture we continue to endorse Orthodox Christianity because it, whether or not Orthodox Christianity is a true account of the universe, because it has a disciplining, civilizing effect on society and on the way people behave, right? And if we lose that set of ideas, right, society will fall apart. Right? I, don't like people, for, I don't believe that for one second, but go ahead. People will misbehave. What I'm saying is it's the same kind of idea. Yeah. Right? In other words, yeah. it's a claim that says there's an idea out there. Yeah. And whether or not that idea maps a certain set of realities that it claims to map, it's important that people believe in that idea because of the way it disciplines their behavior. Yes. Right? To which I think, well, I mean, maybe, you know, or maybe you could do without that um, without that, without that particular idea, right? There are some people who would say, America has moved away from that idea about Christianity and has fallen apart. And there are other people who would say, no, America has moved away from that idea about Christianity and we still don't have chaos in the streets. It seems to be okay. Right. And here's maybe the deeper threat. One possible thing that people might learn in a world where we maintain officially this thing about enumerated powers, even if it's not really there, is the federal government should think twice about doing things. Mm -hmm. But there's a different thing we could learn also. Because as long as the people who hear that principle also know that in reality, the federal government legislates in a way that's not disciplined in that way. The other thing that we learn is that federalism or maybe constitutional law generally is a field of behavior in which we say things that make no sense. Well, well I mean, just, I got to I, I pause you learn. there because I, I've written that book and that article. I mean, co constitutional doctrine is not coherent across the board. It doesn't make sense across the board. I mean, so I, you don't have to convince me of that, but go ahead. Well, the point I'm making is just one of the lessons that insisting on enumerationism at the level of principle, right, even though the various things that you have to believe to make it work are weak, yes. is constitutional law is a field in which we consent to speak as if things that are not really so are so. And I don't think that's a good lesson to teach yeah. about a field of human endeavor that is like actually pretty important for how society runs and for the lives and welfare of hundreds of millions of people. Right. So I, 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 I wouldn't be true to my, I, I, we're running out of time. I want to ask you a personal question. And I'm going to do that in one minute, but I just want to say that, you know, uh, Chris Sprigman at NYU, and I mentioned this before, Chris is a brilliant IP scholar and a brilliant person. Um, he decided to teach con law for a while. And then he decided, no, I'm not doing that anymore because I can't teach courses where I basically have to admit to the students, this is just all made up stuff. This is just made up stuff. And, and, and all I want to say about that, Richard, is, is I think, um, I think your response to my question that um, we have to look, that that it requires us to live in a world where it's all made up and that's not very good. It is all made up, and in Chris's mind, in my mind, and that's because we gave government officials a lot of power for life with no review. So I want to I want to push back just a little yeah. bit. All law is made up. Yeah. Right. But not by the unelected, life, is, not by unelected, life tenured government officials. Well, I mean, I'm not opposed to all judicial lawmaking either, right? Yeah. But I am opposed to making up stuff that doesn't make sense Fair. and acting as if you it believe it made sense because yeah. you will misoperate the machinery that way. Well, it's my, it's my view that that's all of con law, most of con law standing 
uh, going on, but I don't want, I, let me get to my personal question because we have sure. we're, we're gonna, so um, it's personal to me for this reason. So in, everyone who's listening to this probably knows I wrote a book in 2012 saying the Supreme Court is not a court and it's justices are not judges, fully expecting nobody to accept that thesis, uh, which almost no one did until about two years ago, two years ago. And now people are accepting it for the wrong reasons. But leaving that aside, I knew what I was doing there. I was making an argument that almost nobody was going to accept. And I found that it actually carried a toll, a little bit of a personal toll um, over time in having to defend this idea that I really think is right. Um, and, and the last two years, I have a lot of adherence now. But, but at the time, nobody. And I remember Sandy Levinson being very kind to, to do a book thing of mine at, at a big political science convention. You know, and, San, and, and Sandy was both, it's a book worth reading, but of course, no one agrees with it. Um, kind of thing. It took a toll. Do you feel that toll? Because you're articulating something that 99% of lawyers and law professors don't agree with. Same thing with my original thesis. Well, somewhat. Yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, but, but let me accept the invitation for, to say a little bit about it. Yes. Right? The first is, I find that the number of people I persuade isn't zero. Um, uh, one of my most satisfying experiences so far, because I've, I've been you know, writing about this stuff for a few years yeah. now. And one of my most satisfying uh, experiences so far was a set of long conversations that I had with Rick Hills, mm -hmm. uh, professor of law at NYU, mm -hmm. who is one of the smartest people there is about federalism, yeah. um, who read one of my papers and, and sent me a note and said, um, I read this paper and I am troubled by the fact that I'm not sure whether I agree with you. I think he put that on Twitter. And, I think he put that on Twitter. I remember that. So, okay. So like, and like, and, and Rick and I had like long, long, long conversations. Yeah. There were like, he refined some of my ideas and I refined some of his ideas, but like, like it is possible to, and like, I've learned a ton about federalism from Rick and like, and I, and he has like come, you know, to adopt significant parts of, you know, this just so like, it's, it's not that nobody comes on board. That's very satisfying. Right. But the larger thing is this. I am in the business of trying to help people think better about constitutional law. And that means that if there is a way that people are thinking about it that strikes me as not thinking clearly, my job is to say so, right? My job is to be fair to the way they are thinking about it, right? To like, to show what's strong about it, to show what's attractive about it, and so forth, but also to explain what I think is not thinking clearly about it. I don't expect the law to respond, let alone quickly, to what I'm writing, you know? Right. Um, uh, like, I, I, like, Neil Gorsuch is a fully formed adult, you know, with a thickly constituted worldview. Yes. And there is no part of me that thinks he's going to read my stuff and say, you know what? That's right. That's how we should be doing this. Right. right. But I also believe that ideas change slowly over time. And that before the law changes, people's conventional wisdom has to change. And the part of changing the conventional wisdom is articulating an unusual idea in a way that, right, what's the expression? It takes an idea that's off the wall and puts it on the table. Jack Balkan. Here's right. my, by the way, Balkan, right. Balkan. Jack, this is, here's my very first podcast guest. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I've learned a lot from Jack, yeah. right? Including that particular image. Yeah. Um, and now not every idea that, that's now, on the, on the wall or coming off the wall is a good idea. Most of those ideas, you know, should stay out, right. right? But if you've got one that you think actually needs to be taken seriously, the process of getting people to take it seriously involves putting it in front of people and saying, hey, I want you to slow down and think really carefully about this. And if you can change what is um, uh, rejected out of hand and make it be something that no other people have to consider, and then slowly over the course of time, maybe conventional wisdom changes and maybe law professors start to think differently. And maybe the next generation of people who sit where Neil Gorsuch sit today thinks about it a little bit differently. I don't, it's not that I write, you know, so that one day <laughs> right. like, someone will like cite my articles <laughs> and change this piece of constitutional law, but we're part of a process. We're part yeah. of a broad deliberative conversation of trying to think better about this stuff. This is the business we have chosen. And sometimes it's lonely and sometimes it's, 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 it's not lonely and you do it both ways. That is such a um, wonderfully um, 
beautiful way of, of answering my question. And it, and it makes me feel good when my friends asked me in 2011 and 12, why are you writing this book? My answer was, I just want this idea to be part of the conversation. I just want it to, and, and even if you don't accept it full throttle, there are parts of it that if people accept will, will lead to a cleaner, more accurate view of what the Supreme Court actually does. Not what it should do, what it actually mm-hmm. does. The way you articulated that um, just made me feel really good about the um, windmill's eye tilt at. Um, well, so good. Thank you for that well, answer. Good. Because it, it was, sure. Richard, it was great having you on. We we have a hard stop, so I got to say goodbye. But um, I, I, I want everybody to read I do want everybody to read your work because I think it has a lot. Um, it is what a true scholar does. I think you're trying to find out, trying to make people see things in a more accurate way, almost regardless of consequences. Although I think you think the consequences are good. That isn't the point. Well, thank you, Eric. It's very kind of you. And thank you for the invitation and for the conversation. And lots of luck with the next episodes of the podcast. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Richard. Take care.